Welcome to Sunday mornings. This is a little bizarre. Okay, cool. Y'all still not awake yet. I get it. Uh, let me try that again. Welcome to Sunday mornings. All right, half awake. Um, so we, if you have your Bible, there should be one on the table. If you don't have one or if you want to download the Bible app real fast, that's cool too. Um, but we're going to be in Luke 8 is where we're going to land, and I'll kind of get there in a second. Um, but first, I just want to acknowledge the fact of what the Lord is doing. It's a sermon within itself that we're even here this morning, um, that we had 20-plus volunteers show up to set all this stuff up. Uh, it's just bizarre. Um, I mean, I, I just kind of wish that we could, uh, I would have, I don't know. I didn't know what the Lord is up to, but if I would have, I probably would have preached a different message. Um, just because how good he is and what he's doing and how he's moving here. And, um, and let me be clear to say two things. Um, this is not because of the leadership of this church is great or we have a great vision or a great strategy. This is because God is up to something. Um, this has nothing to do with me or any of the leaders or any of the staff or the elders in training or, or anything like that. This is solely because God wants to do what he's doing here. Um, the other part is this. I, I don't want us to feel as though now that we're to Sunday mornings, we've somehow arrived, if that makes sense. Um, now that we can coast, now we can get comfortable. Um, I'll talk about it more later, but that is still 26,000 tally marks um, representing the 26,000 within a 20-minute drive of us that don't know Jesus. Um, so this by no means is arriving. Uh, that is arriving. So there's not a tally mark on that board. Uh, we have not arrived at all. So yes, let's be excited. Let's praise God for what he's doing, but let's not for a second think that, oh, like, oh yeah, let's pat ourselves on the back. Look how good we are, because that's not the case at all. Um, so I don't know if you know the people at the table around you, uh, but just kind of a quick get-to-know-you little exercise um, that we normally don't do, but I'm just really curious. This is going to maybe produce some good stories. Um, I'll give you some seconds to think about it, and then in, and then in a second I'll give you some time to answer. But I want to know the last time that you thought you were 100% right and you turned out being 100% wrong. Like that you were so committed that you went for it thinking that you were 100% right only to find out that you were 100% wrong. So be thinking about that, marinating on that for a little bit. Uh, we'll come back to it. The reason that we're starting to teach through the book of Luke, and we're, we're in chapter 8, it might take us a year and a half, two more years to get through the book, is that we really want to know everything about Jesus. So when we use the word Jesus, especially in the South, in the Bible Belt, everyone has some kind of idea, thought, something. When you say Jesus, their mind goes somewhere. Uh, where that somewhere is can be really dangerous. And even those that have grown up in the church, we might have a misconception of who we think Jesus is. Um, so one of the theologians said that the book of Luke, uh, Luke, Jesus was either at a meal, going to a meal, or coming from a meal. Um, so we entitled the series A Meal with Jesus to kind of go through, because so much community, so much life happens around a table, right? I mean, <clears throat> one of my favorite memories was a year and a half ago, my wife's family came over and we ate dinner and we sat around this table that I'd built in our, um, in our table room, whatever you call that. And uh, we what time was it? 3.30, 4 o'clock before they finally left. So we just sat and talked and talked and we learned about each other, got to share stories, got to embarrass one another, just around the table that so much um, life and vitality came from just sitting around the table. And so we just kind of want to read the book of Luke and say, okay, if we were sitting across the table with Jesus, he's explaining this to us. Who is Jesus? Who is the character, the nature of Jesus Christ? And that will permeate into everything that we do. Uh, now, I said all that. Do you have your answer? Talk about your tables real quick. The last time you thought you were 100% right that you turned out being 100% wrong. 
what was it? And whatever table laughs the loudest, you're going to share that story. Now, I know all the guys are going, I've never been wrong before. I don't know. You got to get something. 100% right, and you turned out to be 100% wrong. Macy, was that you? <laughs> so we don't, we don't have to share. I mean, I, I, if there's, well, I, I take that back. I really want to know. Was there one really good one that, like, we just have to recognize real fast that someone could share? It was just good. Josh, who are you pointing at? Kayla, let's hear it, girl. Time where you thought you were 100% right turned out to be 100% wrong. What was it? Oh, a florist. So you thought a florist put out, that's pretty good. That, but that, that, that's like cute, though. That's not embarrassing. That's like, oh, poor Kayla. Like, I want to know the embarrassing. Does someone have an embarrassing, like, I was 100% confident going into the girls' bathroom just to find out I was in the wrong bathroom. Anyone have anything like that? That's happened to you before? I love it. So the difference, when we think we're 100% right, turned out to be 100% wrong, um, we very quickly learn a different perspective, Right? What we thought we understood, what we thought we knew, um, sometimes embarrassing, sometimes kind of cute and all that, but, but very quickly our perspective changes. And what we're going to study this morning is a huge perspective change. Now, I know like, this is probably not the best sermon because this is kind of um, weighty in some theology and it's 10 o'clock and we haven't quite woken up yet. We're used to like 3.30, 5.30, all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you have your Bibles, Luke 8.40 is where we're going to get at. And I'm hoping that, that for you, this will be as transformative as it has been for me and, and just changing our perspective on things. Because if we change our perspective, I promise you it will lead to more joy. And who doesn't want more joy, right? Perspective leads to joy. Whatever Ben Brown just did was 100% right, but actually was wrong, Right? Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were waiting for him. Now let me stop real fast, and then I'll read the rest of it. I won't interrupt anymore. Um, last week we talked about Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee um, to Gerasenes, healed the demon-possessed man, and they kicked him out. Basically they said, you're, you're crazy, you're scaring us, um, leave us. So they hop on the boat, him and the disciples hop on the boat, come back across the Sea of Galilee. So this is where we pick up, totally different. Um, across the sea he was met by a demon-possessed man. Across this side of the sea people are rushing him, um, going to meet him. Verse 41, and there came a man named Jairus 
who was a ruler of the synagogue, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had only one daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I'm going to break my rule. I'm going to lie. This will be the last time I interrupt. Um, this we'll be talking about next week. So come for Easter. We're going to get to the 12-year-old daughter next week. We just had to read that to get to the rest of the story. Do you guys know it's Easter is next week? Yeah, okay, cool. <clears throat> As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Verse 44. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who is it that has touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you, but you are impressing in on you. Verse 46. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Verse 48. And he said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture that you've given us, how it's inspired. God, thank you for the new perspective that we're going to gain from your text this morning. I'm so appreciative of all that you've done for the church and all that you're doing for us. Um, But Father, would you uh, teach us a new word, a new fresh word this morning? It's your name that we pray. Amen. So, uh, as I was getting ready for this, this would have been a great text to give to one of the interns because of the content of what it was. Um, of just the situation is kind of like, do I really want to preach on that? But I've already committed to preach on this, so here we go. Uh, there's two different cr- people going on in this situation. We've got Jesus. Well, there's actually three. Uh, we've got Jesus, we've got the woman, and we've got the crowd. Um, now, Jesus and the woman both operate in this story, in this context, a little different than they have in the past. Um, so you've got this woman um, who, for the past 12 years, has had this discharge of blood. And so a lot of things that were going on for her, um, because of what this was and the situation that she was living in, um, she was ceremonial unclean. Uh, so the Jewish culture, like, she was basically shunned, just like the lepers, just like everyone else. Um, they couldn't touch her. They couldn't deal with her. So they'd really pushed her to the fringes of society. Uh, so for 12 years, she had no opportunity to go to the temple, no opportunity to worship, no opportunity for any of that. Uh, because of that, she probably had no job, right? Uh, because of that, she probably had no friends. So she's just isolated uh, because of the cards that she was dealt. The hand that she was dealt, she was just there, and we have to stop just for a minute to realize like, this was not because of her sin. That's a po- uh, popular um, disposition for those theologians and those Jewish rulers of the day. That because of what was going on with you, that was either your sin or the sin of your fathers that led to what was happening. Uh, that's just not true. That was just the hand that she was dealt, and we'll understand that more in a little bit. So she was embarrassed. She had no friends. She had no social life. She had no job. She was just there. And so we start to kind of understand a little bit about her, um, the character and the nature. Uh, but I want to stop and just understand um, 12 years. 12 years. Like we get frustrated when Windstream is down for five hours, okay? 12 years she had this situation. 12 years. You want me to say it one more time? 12 years, right? 
We cannot, I mean, some, so many times in Scripture, we just read over 12 years, that, okay, that's significant. She had had no social interaction. She had been an outcast for 12 years. And so we see that she had spent all of her money on a physician, and we've probably done this before. If I could just then, right? So her thought was, if I could just um, fix this situation, then I could go back to normal. She quickly figured out, I'm not a doctor. I don't know how to fix this. If I could just get enough money to go to the doctors, then I could have a normal life again. So she gets enough money to go to the doctors. Doctors can't heal her. Now, where in that story do we start losing hope and despair? Year four, year five? We don't know exactly where she stopped being able to afford the doctor's care, but somewhere in there she's, she's done. Where do, where do you lose hope? Where do you start running out of steam? Where do you start running out of energy? Year eight, year nine? So year 12, she hears about this guy, Jesus, that's coming through. Now, I'm just being candid. Uh, I don't do sick well. Anyone else? Uh, is anyone else a baby when it comes to being sick? Okay, that's me. Three, I've got the two women. I've got my mom and my wife in this room. They can both attest I am a baby when it comes to being sick. Year 12, she hears about this guy, Jesus, that's hearing, healing and doing all these miracles left and right, and she says, I'm, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm going to go try. I'm going to give one more shot. So she goes into the crowd, and there's a lot of conjecture that we kind of deal with here uh, because we don't know exactly why. Why was she not up in his face? I think the number one reason would be shame. Did she really want to admit in front of a crowd what was going on? I mean, could you imagine if she was ceremonial, unclean, no one would touch her, no one would come close to her. They're in a crowd with her. If she confesses to Jesus face to face, here's what's going on with me, um, there might be a riot breaks out. How dare you touch me? How dare you try to get to Jesus? How dare you do any of this get away, woman, get out of here? So probably for her shame, she's just trying to blend in and sneak and get as close to Jesus. Uh, maybe just her desperation. Um, we talked about that he just, she touches the fringe of his garment. The Jewish leaders of the day would wear like a sash, a blue sash. There'd be tassels, and the tassels were to represent like keep God's command. So the Pharisees kind of took this to exaggeration. Um, so when she reached out, she hit one of the tassels. So maybe it was because the crowd was so big. Um, the same, we, you know, we talked about the parable of the sower where the thorns come up and they um, grip out the good fruit. That's the same verbiage that Luke uses here, that the crowds were so pressed to Jesus that they were literally pressing around him, squeezing him to death, basically. That's why we see the Pharisee or the religious, or, sorry, that's when we see the disciples pushing people away, constantly going, like, hey, you got to let him breathe. He can't perform a miracle if he's dead, right? Like, get out of here a little bit. So maybe it was her desperation that she was just reaching through the crowd as much as she could to get to his garment. But what we see here, and we'll talk more about this in a second, was it was her faith. Another translation that she took a risk in trusting Jesus. Her faith, she took a risk. She reached out. Now Jesus stops everything, approaches her, and says, daughter. Here's a lady, ceremonial unclean, had no community, had no social life. The Jewish leaders had pushed her to the fringe of society. And Jesus responds in the total opposite way. He calls her daughter. This is the only recorded time in the New Testament Jesus uses daughter. That tender affection of what has happened in that moment of daughter. 
So there's so many bizarre things happening with how she got to Jesus and what she was living with. But then the other part was Jesus. Uh, Because we see all the miracles that Jesus has performed, um, there's always kind of the same ending to his miracles. Hey, I've healed you, uh, but don't tell anybody. Keep Keep it quiet, keep it hidden, keep it a secret, don't tell anybody. The reason being was the religious leaders, the Jews and the Pharisees, Sadducees, all these guys hated Jesus because of what he was doing. So they wanted to kill him. There's already death threats. Um, this part in Luke, there's probably already um, the Pharisees getting together and plotting against his death, trying to trap him in this. Um, so they were trying to get him. So Jesus would go, hey, like, don't let this get out yet. Of course it always did, right? People always lost their mind when Jesus healed them. Hey, don't let this get out yet because this is going to lead to an earlier death. Let, let's slow this thing down. But this example is a little different. Jesus stops and says, oh, wait, wait, like, someone has touched me. And we're not going anywhere until I meet that person. I felt the power leave me. Everyone stop. Everyone pump their brakes. Who was that? And Peter, who's just a little feisty disciple, goes, Jesus, come on, bro. Look around. Everyone's touching you. Let's just go. Because remember, they're on the way to heal the 12-year-old who's near death. Peter, come on, let's, let's go, let's get a move on it. Someone touched you, ooh-hoo, let's, Jesus, let's go. Jesus goes, no, no, let's, let's stop. Jesus hasn't done this before, and he won't really do this again. Who touched me? I felt the power leave from me. Why did Jesus respond in such a way? Why did Jesus make her come in front, stand up in front of all this crowd and admit her shame and admit what she was embarrassed about, admit the 12 years of uncleanliness that she was dealing with? Why did Jesus do it? Now, obviously, our initial answer, oh yeah, because she was healed. It was a miracle. Uh, Well, that logic doesn't flow because everywhere else in the Gospels, he says, hey, keep this quiet. So what was it that led her to that point? What was it? Here's kind of where the perspective starts to come. Yes, the miracle was incredible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to undermine that. But the one thing that Jesus needed was the same thing that the woman needed, was the same thing that the crowd needed, was not the miracle, was not what Jesus was doing. It was the glory that Jesus received. The most important thing for that woman was not to be healed, but was to give glory to Christ. Now, here's where this change starts to come from. Um, Joy is different than happiness. Are we tracking with that? Okay. Joy is different because we can kind of flesh this miracle out. Um, If Jesus is just concerned with our happiness, uh, that would have faded for that woman. She's been healed. She goes back to her village. Um, Some say it was 30 miles away. She goes back to her village. She's hanging out. Uh, a A month later, her mom dies. So she was happy for a month, and then her friends start to leave her. Then she says, you know what, like, I'm just going to go get another job, and she can't find a job. And then she goes, okay, well, like, maybe I'm just going to move towns and get a fresh start. And she moves towns and can't get a fresh start, and she ends up homeless, and you can just kind of finish out from there. Jesus was not concerned about her happiness. He was concerned about her joy. Jesus was really, and this is where we start getting weighty, you've got to hear me out. Jesus wasn't even really concerned about the miracle that he performed. He was concerned about her giving glory to him. The greatest thing we can do for our joy is giving glory to God. Period. And this is the miracle behind the miracle. If we stop and say, oh, Jesus healed her, that's a great story, but we don't dive into why did Jesus make her stop and give glory to where glory was due, then we've missed the whole point of this narrative. We've missed the whole point of the story. The greatest joy that we can have is giving glory to God. Now, 
If you have a Bible, flip over to Psalm 23. I want you to see this. This principle, this idea, is all over Scripture. It's one of those deals, once we get through it today, hopefully, uh, and you have these lenses on, you'll see it all over Scripture. It's, you cannot read a verse, you cannot read a passage without bumping into the greatest thing for our joy, not our happiness. Our joy is giving God glory. And we can even understand this, most of you guys, uh, some of you parents, some of you not, but even some of you college students and younger, um, it would be the most unhealthy thing for your parents to give you everything you wanted just to keep you happy, right? If I gave my kids literally everything they wanted to keep them happy, they would probably be dead. Just, just honest. You want a knuckle sandwich? Yeah, Dad, give me a knuckle sandwich. Oops. Well, Carly's done. Right? Like, the happiness does not come from... Carly's my daughter, just so you don't know. Uh, she's five months old, so if I punched her, it would not end well. There's that. Don't judge me. Jeez. So this idea, happiness is, is nowhere to be found in Scripture. Um, lasting joy is what is. So Psalm 23, if you have any background in church, you've heard this, you understand this text. It's a beautiful text, but it's going to help prove the point that we're going for. Psalm 23, pick it up, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Sounds pretty good, right? I mean, it sounds like God is after our happiness. He wants our happiness. We're the target of his affection. We're the point of the story. But we cannot stop there. We've got to keep reading he leads me in paths of righteousness, if you have a pen, underline this, for his name's sake. For his name's sake. Now we have the whole context. Let me read it one more time. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Another way to say it, for his glory. So the way that he leads us, the way that he gets us to the still waters, he gets us to the green pastures, the reason he gives us joy in life is so that he would be glorified. We have to start getting out of this caveat of understanding everything is about me and my happiness, and I am the target, I am the sole affection of Jesus Christ, because that's not true. The sole affection of Jesus Christ is giving glory to God, and that's where we fall into. The greatest joy, when we start getting this para, uh, what is that word? I really just blanked. Man, I was preaching too. Perspective, there it is. Let me start back in. Y'all act like you're taking notes. Here we go. The greatest joy comes when we shift our perspective and understand it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our circumstances. It's about in everything we do, giving glory to Christ. And when that perspective, that shift starts to come, um, we start to really become untouchable, don't we? Nothing can touch us because we're constantly on another level with Christ. Here's a couple other scriptures we need to see. I'll just read through them. You don't have to keep flipping. Um, Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory. 
Jeremiah 13, 11, I've made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, says the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Psalms 106, 7 through 8. Our fathers rebelled against the Most High at the Red Sea, yet he saved them for his name's sake that he might be made known and his power made known. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it from you. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do not do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. And the last one, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. He comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at all who marvel and believe. So we're starting to get the picture. The ultimate affection for God is his glory. And that is a really good thing for us. Now, we start to, I mean, if you're just a thinker, if you're just maybe more of an emotional type, we're reading these texts, we're understanding the scriptures and going, man, doesn't that make God a little egotistical? Like if God is only for God, doesn't that make him a little bit egotistical? Now, my first pushback would be, doesn't that make you egotistical asking the God of the universe how he, anyways, we won't go down that road. I'll, I'll answer your question and be a little bit more gentle. How about that? Um, because this isn't a new question. This isn't a new thought. Um, everyone ever heard of Oprah Winfrey? Oprah? Okay. Uh, in light of Oprah and who she is, everyone reach underneath your seat this morning. Everyone, go ahead and reach under your seat. Get out of here, you fools. You get a new car. You get a No. So with, as we talk about Oprah, one of her big problems with the God of the Bible is this idea she talks about in, in one of her videos, and she writes about it in a book, that she cannot get around the fact that God was a jealous God. She didn't see how that fit into love, that God was a jealous God, that he wanted his affection. He wanted uh, his people. She couldn't get around that fact. And so that's one of the theologies that pushed Oprah away. Uh, anyone ever read anything from C.S. Lewis? Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, it's kind of the classic. Okay. Um, C.S. Lewis, before he was a believer, uh, this was one of his big things. Um, he read through the book of Psalms and said that God in Psalms sounded like a needy old woman fishing for compliments. A needy old woman, maybe he didn't say old, but that's my paraphrase of old Jack's quote. A needy woman fishing for compliments. Give me glory, give me praise, aren't I great? And C.S. Lewis said, no, no, you're not. Like, that's, that's not what I'm all about. But as his conversion took place and as he started following Jesus, um, this is what he came to the conclusion of. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Okay, let me read one more time because C.S. Lewis is way smarter than all of us. No offense, you might be smart, bro, smarter. It is not out of our compliment, it's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Now, we probably have had this experience, what Lewis is getting at. Um, have you ever had that time where like, someone did something nice for you, something took place, and it was just welling inside your chest? You missed the opportunity to tell them how much you appreciated them. So you might have chased them down in the parking lot. It might have hit you later. You sent them a text and go, I just need you to know how much you blessed my socks off, right? Have we had that experience? 
So it's not enough for us to feel that way inside. We have to get it out. We have to give compliments. We have to express what we're feeling inside. And Lewis is saying what God is asking us, what he's pressing into us, is you know I'm good. You know I've created everything. You know my glory is incredible, but it's not fulfilled until it's expressed. And that's where true joy comes from. Uh, John Piper writes about this too, and how much it kind of influenced him. And here's what he said. Joy is not in thinking highly of ourselves. Joy reaches its heights in moments of self-forgetfulness in the presence of beauty and greatness. So the truest joy comes when we forget about ourselves and we see the beauty and greatness that is God. So let's take it away from the spiritual realm for a second and just kind of argue it another way. Um, have you ever stand in front of, I don't know, how many people were beach people? Right? So you get to the ocean, you stand out on the beach, that first morning all you can see is water around you, and in that moment everything fades. Nothing matters. You're just enjoying the, the, what you see, the view, the vastness of beauty in front of you. You forget that you're 30 days late in your mortgage. Right? You forget that your student debt is going up a dollar every second. All that stuff just fades away and you're just lost in the beauty that is the ocean. For me, it's, it's more the mountains. When I'm on the ocean, like, the sand gets everywhere. It's hot. My kids are, like, eating it. It's just not a good thing. I don't, I'm not a beach guy. I love my wife. That's why we go to the beach. I'm not a beach guy. For me, it's the mountains. Uh, last Tuesday, the last Tuesday of every month, I just get away, go pray, read the Bible, journal, just get away from everything. And so last Tuesday, I went up into the National Forest. And just looking at the views just allowed me to get away from everything. So Piper's saying, that's where true joy is found. So what if we take that away from the mountain? What if we give that affection to where it's due, which is God and his glory? And what if, that's why Jesus stopped and said, no, no, no. The miracle was great, but the true joy is found in when you understand where the miracle came from. Where did it go? Where did it come from? Now, there's another kind of counter-argument here I've got to address. Um, if you look back at Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Two different, two different ways to describe that, right? He leads me. Now, this is what we want, right? He leads me. I'm following him. Everything's good. I love God. He's performing miracles. Everything's great. Or he makes you lay down. Now, both are for his joy. One is a miracle that is incredible to experience, and we probably all have that moment. One comes through horrible life experiences. Are we tracking? So miracles can point us to God's glory, but the suckiness of life, if I can say that, can also point us to the glory of God. So he either leads us or he makes us. But if God's glory is preeminent, if it is above all things, that should be the affection of our joy. That's the all in all. That's where we're going. That's what we want as I was writing the sermon, I thought about, um, it was probably 2006. And it was one of those, like, 11 years later, like, oh, that makes sense now. Great. Uh, because two of my friends in college, uh, simultaneously, they were really good friends. Um, one's mom was dying from cancer. 
Um, she was getting close. I think she's, she survived and she's better now. But at that moment, we just, it was kind of a hit or miss. We didn't know what was going to happen. And the other, uh, I was over Christmas break. She called me. Um, it was about 10, 11 o'clock at night. No one had heard from her mom in five or six hours. Just disappeared. East Cobb area just disappeared. No one knew where she was. So they're calling her phone. They're driving around looking for her. They, they can't find her frantically looking for the mom. And somebody suggested, hey, like, I know you've called the hospital. Have you just gone? Like, just go walk around, maybe something. So they get to the hospital. Sure enough, she's in the hospital fighting through recovery, fighting for her life. And so about January, February, we come back after the break. Both of this is going on in these two girls' lives. And y'all remember that old song, Blessed Be Your Name? I say old, it's not really that old. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know that one? Okay. Um, good, right? Matt, can I try out for the band? Cool, bro. I remember watching them sing this song and going, that's bullcrap. You do not feel that way. You're being a hypocrite. You're being fake. Quit singing that song. And me being the guy that I am, I, I called him out on it. Uh, after that night, after worship, I said, you, you cannot honestly tell me you really feel that way. You, like, you can't tell me, tell me, just admit to me, you're being a hypocrite. You're in a church service, so therefore you think you need to worship. You got the hands raised. You're just playing the part. You can't really feel that way. And one of the girls said, if I don't worship, if I don't forget that he's the king, I'm going to wall in self-pity. So yeah, even though I'm forgetting in, in moments I don't think he's that good, the worship is what's bringing me back to joy. A couple weeks ago, we've had two students commit suicide in Lumpkin County High School. And I had the same feeling, same emotion when I'm sitting at a prayer vigil and I'm five feet away from one of the mothers whose sons committed suicide. And she's worshiping her guts out, man. Jesus paid it all, it's plain, and she's got her hands in the air singing, and I'm going, no way. No way could I do that. Like, wh what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing? We're, we're two, three days removed from the hardest day of your life, and, and you're worshiping? Like, what is happening? But they understood the deeper theology. It's not about our life circumstance. The perspective changes when God gets his glory. So whether he leads us and everything is good, praise God for his glory. Or if he makes us lay down, praise God for his glory. Because happiness is going to fade. Happiness is going to go away. But his glory will not. So as we start to wonder and ponder through this, that ultimately God is for God's glory, and that's the best news for us, that our, our deepest truest joy is found in his glory, things start to change for us. Um, one of my favorite biblical characters is Paul, and he understood this. Um, because Paul was focused on God getting the glory, you could not touch Paul, right? I mean, dude was shipwrecked two or three times. One of the shipwrecks gets shipwrecked, gets bit by a snake. Okay, I love Jesus. At that point, I'm like, God, you, I'm out. <laughs> Come on, man, give me a break. Shipwrecked, now snake bit. Uh, bye, Felicia, I'm gone, right? Get me out of here. I cannot, like, this is not about me. Exactly. It was never about you. This, all of this is never about us. So when we get to that point, 
when we are to start to understand that ultimately God is for God's glory and the best perspective we can have, the greatest joy we can have is getting our eyes above the fray of life and getting it set on his glory and his name and his renown. And that's where true joy is found. That's where true perspective gives life. So as we start to land the plane tonight, the big question that we start to wrestle with, okay, so, so what does this mean for me? What now do I do? Because we end every gathering with communion. Uh, one of the things that we've just decided to do very early on uh, is a way for us to remember who Christ is. It's a way to keep me true and the guys that communicate true, that we can't preach anything contrary to the gospel because we're going to celebrate the gospel in a second. So as we go to take communion, as believers, if you're not a believer, that's, I'm so glad that you're here, but we just ask that you would respect this time for us as believers. It's a really special time for us. As we start to take this, I want us to kind of go on a journey. That sounds really cheesy. Let's go on a journey. Think back in your life. One of, one of the things my wife said as I was talking to her last night about this, she said, if I would have understood this two years ago, I probably would have handled this situation differently. So where in our life have we gotten so frustrated and so angry at God because we feel like he didn't give us what we wanted? That he wasn't about our happiness. And where do we need to repent and say, God, I'm sorry I didn't give you glory through that situation. Where is it in our life? And, and so take a moment as we end to ponder that thought, but then also as we leave from here, uh, here's what I know. We don't know what's coming. Have you all heard that? The only thing I know is that I don't know. Who, who knows what's coming? One of you guys is going to win the lottery this week. I feel it. It's going to be great. And you're going to donate so much money to me, not the church, to me, and I'm going to buy a yacht and everything's going to be great. And we're going to celebrate God's glory. But some of us are going to have the worst week of our life. Some of us might get a phone call this week that we just hate getting those phone calls. And some of us are going to get the greatest grades we've ever received. And if that's what life is, we ride the highs and we cry through the lows, we're missing the beauty of the gospel. Because here's what doesn't change. God and his glory. So when things are good, we're singing. When things are bad, we're singing. And it changes everything about us. Because our periphery, our perspective, is no more based around what we're experiencing and what we're going through. Our perspective is the joy that can only be found in Christ. So for God being for God and his glory is the greatest thing for us. If God was just for us and our happiness, man, we'd be miserable. Because happiness never comes. But God being for God and his glory is the best thing he can do for us. That's where true joy is found. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to take communion. And I really want us to wrestle through some of those experiences where, where maybe we just were so frustrated with God God, where were you? If this would have changed, everything would have been different. And maybe there's enough time for us to look back and say, but God, did you get your glory out of that? Like, were you made famous through that situation? In my life, were you made famous through that situation? 
Because here we are 2,000 years later still talking about this woman. And it was not the miracle that we're talking about. It was the confession of how good God is that we're talking about and him getting the glory. And then when we stop and we worship, whether we feel it or not, we sing our cuts out because God and his glory is where our joy is found. So I'm not saying fake it till you make it, but I'm saying he's good. And if we don't feel like it, that doesn't change the fact that he's good. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you love us. But God, thank you that you've not made us the point. Thank you that you don't get your fulfillment in us. God, you get your fulfillment in yourself. And that's not egotistical. That's not um, self-loathing. God, you're just glorious. That's who you are. That's your nature. That's your character. And Jesus, would we understand this perspective of joy, that the greatest joy we can have is getting above the fray, getting above the distractions, getting above the good and the bad, and just sitting and focusing with you. God, the woman just trembling got down in front of Jesus' feet and confessed what he had done for her. God, would we model that posture? Would we sing? Would we worship? Would we praise? Not because how it makes us feel or not because it changes the situation that we're in. Because you're God and you love us. Now, thanks for not giving up on us. Thanks for your glory and your name and your renown being the target for the world. God, would we make your name and your renown famous in Dahlonega by the way we handle situations good and bad, by the way that our joy cannot be taken from us, that whether you're blessing us, we're singing your praise, or whether you're taken away from us, we're singing your praise. Because you are good and you are God.